I think we're ready. Good morning. Uh, our friend Abby, sitting right here, is going to pray for us this morning. Thank you very much. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning with thankful hearts and just pray that you would bless this time that we get to spend together in fellowship. Pray that you would open our hearts to um, your word and our minds, um, that you would just help us to, to learn today and to love one another. In your son's name, amen. Amen. Okay, uh, we're in a course called From Brat to Beatific, and we're going through all the different stages that the apostles uh, lay out in the spiritual journey that they claim are analogous to the physical, biological stages that we all go through uh, as we develop as human beings. So what's the first stage? Who can remember? Let's have a little oral exam here on... Um, Sunday morning. What's the first stage that we studied? Uh, Preborn, yes. Uh, oh, oh, you said newborn. Okay, let's go back one stage be before that. And it was the natural person or the, uh, if you wanted to really milk the analogy for everything that it's worth, uh, preborn. And these are people that can be outstanding human beings in their own right, but there's one thing that Jesus said that they lack. And who can remember this Greek word? What do they need? Zoe. Zoe, yes. They need God's uncreated life. And we all need that. that. It doesn't matter what kind of a human being you are. You can be the most developed human in your own right. You could be a human that is just completely destroyed as a human being. And you remember in Jesus' ministry, uh, all kinds of different kinds of people were attracted to him. And he didn't make any distinctions uh, primarily about where they were in the social class. His main concern for all people was that they would have this thing called life. And that's what he said to the religious leaders of his day, which implies that they didn't have it. So therefore, we know that it, en it encompasses all human beings. We all need Zoe. Then, the next stage, what did we study? Newborn, babies, infancy. Uh, does anyone uh, remember what the apostles said that the primary need of the newborn spiritual baby milk? And what, how did we define that? What was, what was their uh, understanding of giving people milk? For one thing, they weren't ready for the... They weren't ready for the heavy stuff, which is metaphorically or analogically described as meat. So when you're in this infancy stage, you're not ready for meat, and therefore you can only eat milk. Well, what is milk? The, it's the, yes, it, the words of God, for sure, on what level? Yeah, very basic and uh, with no sneering superiority or... Uh, looking down on people or thinking, uh, you know, you're this little baby infancy stage and you need this little simple stuff because the simple stuff actually turns out to be very profound. Um, I would think um, it would be a fair um, characterization to say if I was going to take a, if somebody presented to me as a newborn baby Christian, I would probably have them read the letters of John, first and second and third John, and then the gospel of John. Um, because he really has a heart for putting out the just core essential truths of the Christian faith in a way that are fairly simple to understand. 
I don't know if you found this in your reading of John, but I find that to be true. Uh, whereas Peter, uh, in I think one of the ironic uh, passages of the New Testament, speaking of Paul's writings in 2 Peter 3, says, well, in Paul's writings, according to the wisdom that God has given to him, writes many things along these lines, some of which are hard to understand. Does anyone ever remember him saying this? Which I think, you know, it's got to be written with a slight smile on his face. Uh, and so he suggests, have you found this to be true in your reading of Paul, that there are some things that you're like, whoa, this is really kind of, yes. So uh, the worst thing that we can do for a baby Christian is overwhelm them with uh, theories of uh, the book of Revelation and sort of really heavy theology. What a little baby needs is basic food, basic nourishment, and the overwhelming sense that they are loved. And I hope, um, as you know, most of you go to Christ Church and you know that you get this transformation story, the future story that's being enacted. And I hope that these notions about how we treat people somewhat differently based on their spiritual. Um, uh, where they are at the present time. And I realize there's a lot of danger in that. No one wants to classify people and label them and all of the problems that can come from it. But nevertheless, we have to make the acknowledgement that some people are at different stages of their spiritual journey. And somebody has to identify that. And we have to learn how to identify that of ourselves, which is, you know, the most important thing that we can learn out of this course is, you know, really seriously in the eyes of God, where am I spiritually and what do I need to do to go forward? But then also God may call each one of you at certain times to help identify another person on the journey and then get them or nurture them into the places and zones and groups that would be the best for them so that they can really start to flourish. So I hope you're thinking about that. All right, so what's the next stage that we did? We did uh, pre-born, we did baby, we did last week. Uh, well, we had the toddler, you know, we didn't milk it out all to the maximum degree. We jumped a big category. So we included infants and toddlers and babies and all those in one category. And adult. Um, adolescent. And uh, who recalls last week what we learned from First John when he talks about this young stage, neoniscoi, the young person? Uh, who recalls what he characterizes their task as? Or what does he say is true about them? How do you know when somebody is emerging as a young adolescent Christian? He gives some clues. First John 2, yes? They take, begin to take responsibility and um, well, they learn about evil and how to Yes, he puts their growth in contrast to this thing called evil. And, and then he says to them, and, and something's happening to you. You are overcoming. You have overcome. You actually have the Nike, the victory over evil. As you're growing up and realizing how messed up the world is and how deep the need of the world is for Christ can be kind of discouraging. But he gives them an encouraging, hopeful uh, note in that he says, look, there's something that you have that enables you to overcome this evil and to continue to grow. And does anyone recall what he says? What, what's, what does he affirm to them that is the source of their burgeoning, growing strength?
What did they take in? They, they, yes, he, he says the word of God. Remember this from 1 John 2? The word of God remains in you or abides in you or lives in you. And we talked a little bit about this, that it means both. Jesus as a person and the words of God that are in the Bible. This person, this young adolescent, this characterization of the spiritual stage is a person that's really learning how to allow both Jesus and the words of God to begin to come together. And they're living off of this. They're getting strength from it. And they're moving forward. They're, they're really growing. It's a beautiful thing. But we also saw what is true about adolescents. What can they also do? They, they, can, they can swing the other way. And, and, and they, just as they can be spectacular in some areas, they can be spectacularly uh, wrong in other areas, too. And so this is something that we have to learn to uh, pay attention to in the Christian community. This happens to people. They, um, at this stage, they have the tendency to make uh, not only great advancements, but also huge mistakes. And so it's not something that, uh, just like we don't throw adolescents out of our families when they start going crazy, right? <laughs> or maybe we do sometimes, but we don't really mean it. it, it the, most 99% of parents I know, even if they do wind up throwing their kid out for a while, it's always with the intentionality that we want to come back together as a family. Don't you think that's true? I mean, there's always the outliers. But if that's, if that's true among humans, it's much more true among God. I mean, God sees us malfunctioning in the states of adolescence that we're in. It's not a matter of getting, throwing us out of the family. There's a a strategy that God has to bring an adolescent into the next stage that we're talking about today, and that is maturity. And we finally come to this stage up on the board. And I've got a Greek word there. Uh, I call these people the telic Christians. And uh, because it is a Greek word that Paul uses himself, and it is a Greek word used uh, in all kinds of different ways in Greek literature to mean something that had a design to it, and that that thing, whatever it may be, has reached its designed completion. Uh, so sometimes it'll, uh, they'll talk about like a grain of corn or some sort of a seed reaching its telos or its telic completion. So how, how do we know like when an acorn has achieved the state of telicness? Uh, well, it, well, it falls off the tree, and then, then what happens? There's a design entailed with this whole thing. What happens? A shoot comes up, and the next thing you know, when it reaches telic stage, when it becomes telos, you have a huge oak tree. The same thing with any other grain that you throw into the ground, uh, wheat, corn, whatever. You throw it into the ground, and it's got an intelligence in, encoded within it, or at least it certainly appears to have. <laughs> and, you know, people who are creationists believe that God hard wired the intelligence into all things so that they function and grow in accordance with God's design. There's a plan to this. It's not random. So when you're looking at things from what they call a teleological point of view, what you want to do is see the end. What is the end result when this thing, whatever it is that you're looking at, when it hits its apex and achieves the fullness of which the intelligence has been program programmed into it, then you say, well, okay, that, that's maturity. That's reached its stage of maturity. So uh, has there been a, um, like a, let's think about something that we deal with every day, the automobile. Um, 
has there been an evolution towards telic states of automobiles? Think about the whole beginning from when cars started up until now. Yes, until the computer goes wrong in the car and then it's back to square one. <laughs> it's back to square one, yes. And some people could argue whether the computerization of cars, you forget about the days, I don't know if any of you were like to work on cars or used to, but forget about those days, right? Because you're not getting underneath the hood of the car the way they've packed them and hidden them with the computers and everything. That's all over. So. Now, you could argue that, but still, wow, the difference between hopping in a T Model T and going out and jumping into your uh, whatever you're driving right now is huge. And so, you know, uh, what is the uh, ultimate car, by the way? What's the state of telic uh, maturity? What is the standard of all cars? Maserati. Oh, no, not Maserati. It used to be the Cadillac, but what's the, what's the now new standard? I'm shocked that you don't know this. Yes, BMW. BMW, right. <laughs> the ultimate driving machine. Well, they're making a truth claim. They're saying our car is the most advanced, mature, telic example of what an automobile should be. Shocked you guys don't know this. All right, so what we want to now find out is what is a, what is a telos Christian? Now, I want you to turn to Philippians 3, and I'll give you a handout today. And we're going to go through this, but I, before we do it, I have to lay out some qualifiers, because otherwise some of us will get very depressed, <laughs> including me. Yes. I'm sorry? There's a, yeah, there is a handout, yeah. Sorry, thanks. Anyone else? Anyone? A book. A Bible. Oh, a book, a Bible, Yes. Um, there's one right there. Great. So we're in Philippians chapter 3, and I want to show you why I'm, you know, I, we could have selected um, any number of passages to arrive at a definition of Christian maturity. But I think this one is among the very best, if not the best. And why do I say that? What does he say in verse 15? After he gets done unpacking all of this information that he's giving to them. In your translation, it reads, and as many as are what? Perfect. Mature. Uh, mature is another translation. Anything else different? Perfect or mature. 315. As many as are. The problem with translating that, now that's, this Greek word is telos. So he's saying, as many people as are at this telic state, this is how I want you to think. Well, wh what does he want us to think? What he just got done telling us. So by simple logic, I am suggesting to you that whatever precedes 315 is the evidence of a telic mind, of a Christian that's achieved a state of telos. Because he says, if you are there with me, if you are telic, then you will think this way. So this is the standard of what it means to be a fully developed Christian. And the problem when you translate it perfect, there's another place in the New Testament where that word perfect shows up that has caused no end of distress to people when they've read it. And does anyone remember where it is? Sermon on the Mount when the master says what? Anyone remember? Be perfect even as my heavenly Father is perfect. Do you remember reading this text? 
everybody reads that and they fall into total despair because they think that Jesus is suggesting that we are to be actually perfect in the same way that God is. That is an absolute impossibility. None of us can ever achieve that state of perfection. So if that's the standard by which you're gonna try to gauge where you're going to be in God, you're, it's gonna be a perpetual nightmare because you'll never be able to reach it. And in fact, many people read that passage and they say, well, I might as well just quit right now because there's no way I'm ever gonna achieve that. And so it becomes very discouraging. But when you read it this way, when you, when you realize that Jesus was using that Greek word telos there, he says, is, I want you to be telos or fully developed in the same way that God is. Now if you go back into the context of the passage and read it, he's talking about God's love for all people, the good and the bad. Do you remember this now? And he said, you know, look, God sends the rain down on the righteous and the unrighteous. He shines the sun down on all people. And then he says, so there, that's the way I want you to be in the realm of love. I want you to love people the way God does, fully, in a mature way. Not because they deserve it, but because what? Because, because they're, they were made by God, and because what do we know about God? God is love. That's what John tells us. So the state of, in Jesus' mind, one of the, the standards of having re reached maturity is that the person has the spiritual capacity to love people, not because they deserve it, but because God is love. Can you see that as a, a definite stage of spiritual growth? Um, but he didn't ever mean it to be that you were going to be perfect as God or even, even love God, love others as the, way, the same way that God does. You can love them similarly and start moving into that, that posture, but you're never going to be perfect. So don't take it that way. So whatever Paul's describing in Philippians 3 is one example of a perfect mindset. Now before we look at it, I need to show you some passages. Could you find 2.5 in Philippians? This is all in the context of this passage. This, this whole theology of Paul is, and I'm gonna use the universal symbol for Christ here, the Cairo, and he tells us that Jesus Christ did something during his incarnation in Philippians 2.5. And uh, I don't know what happened to the mic, but there it is right there. Kindly read 2.5 out of the classic KJV. That'll be interesting. This is Philippians 2.5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, keep going. Who? I took my eyes off of it here. That's okay. Who, through, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Okay, so let's start with Jesus. He, he, he starts off and he says Jesus was equal to God, right? He did, he, that was his status. He is God. He was with God in the beginning. He, this is before he had a body. This is before he became a human. And what did he say? So Christ is equal. I'll use another universal symbol for God. Christ shares equality with God. And later on we learn, learn that we have the Holy Spirit as well. We have the triune God. They're all equally divine. They've existed this way from all eternity. 
And at a certain point, uh, what inside of the economy of the Trinity, as theologians would talk, inside the relationship of the Trinity, one of them decided in consort with the other two to do something. And what did, the, what did this one do? This text tells you. He emptied himself. He emptied himself. And that included, among other things, what? Becoming, first of all, a human. And then what else? What kind of a human did he become? He became uh, the lowest form of human. He became a slave. Hey, he could have. How did everyone think the Messiah was going to come? As a human, yes. What kind of him? the top level. He was going to come as the king of the kings, and instead he came as the slave of the slaves. He came as the lowest form of human, and then he also gave himself over to a form of death, which most people have regarded as the lowest form of death. What did he allow to happen to him? He, He gave himself over, Paul says, to a cross death, to the death of the cross, the most humiliating and horrible way that the ancient world invented to kill somebody. So he chooses... This is an emptying, this is an emptying, and then he uses a cross, you know, he chooses cross death. Wow. Now, in this emptying, the theology of the New Testament is, is that Jesus stopped using his divine powers when he became a human. And he says that himself in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. He blatantly tells the apostles, I did not use my divine powers. I did not do this stuff on my own. So if he didn't do it on his own, if he didn't use his divine powers to do it, how did he do the things that he did? He, he allowed these two members of the Trinity to work in and through him while he laid aside the use of his own divine powers. So in other words, he equalized the playing field. He became as close to a human, uh, to you as a human as he could. Uh, it would be great, wouldn't it be, if you had divine powers in your back pocket that you could call upon any time that you needed them? If you were, could you imagine how awesome that would be to be God, to be equal with God, that any thing you faced, you could just call up your divine powers and use to solve any situation or solution, get any solution you needed? And the New Testament says Jesus never did that. Instead, he totally yielded himself and let God work in and through him to do what he did. Okay, well, how does that relate to you and me? Now you've got to go over to 2, 12, and 13. I'm telling you all this before we get to Philippians 3, because if we read Philippians 3, what Paul is saying there, and don't understand this, we will become very discouraged. You need to understand this as the as the predicate for Philippians 3. So when we get to 2, 12, and 13, we need another reader, or Jim, you can do it, or Judge can do it, whatever. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, so now he says what? Here you are, you are a human being who's received Zoe. You've become alive spiritually. And now he tells you an awesome secret, that God, in a very similar way to the way God worked in Jesus when he became a human, 
God is now gonna work in and through us in two primary ways. Does he say, he says, for God is at work in you, in what ways? To will, to will and to work, okay? So this is will, your choices, your values, what you're becoming as a human, what you're allowing yourself to be through God's grace and then work what it is that God wants to do in and through you. And he's saying that this is gonna be worked out in our lives very closely to the way Jesus lived when he was on this earth. Okay, now I'm gonna stop right there. Jerry's got a question, go for it. Yeah, I mean, since the Holy Spirit is the, the most important thing in the way we develop uh, from where we are, why doesn't the Holy Spirit have a symbol like God in the... Oh, well, he does. Okay, there. You don't, when you draw a model, you want it to be um, not uh, diverting. Okay, so how's that? First Greek letter for pneuma, spirit, pi, okay. Uh, what do you think about this theology here? This is the heart and essence of the New Testament, that Christ himself didn't use his own powers, and now God has set up a scenario in which he's saying to you and to me, will you kindly stop using your own powers to live the Christian life and let use my powers, let my powers be your resource? Yes, sir. Yeah, um, I think this is a, 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 a translational problem. Um, you know, like in the book of Proverbs, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, in Hebrew, the word yare, which is what he, fear means, uh, it doesn't mean be afraid of. It means this sense that, uh, like a theologian uh, came up with this book called The, uh, the Numinous, The Idea of the Holy. He was a Jewish theologian. And the thing he said, the unmistakable sign of God's presence or you're interacting with God is a sense of awe. That's, it's awe. It's the realization that God is not you, that you're dealing with something, someone that is so far superior to us as humans that it's ridiculous. And it should make you have a sense of awe. And the trembling, as I would take it that way, this, that you're in such an awestruck, amazing state that God could actually live inside of you and work in and through you, that you would joyfully cooperate with God and let God do it, not be afraid of God. Can't be that. And here's another reason why. Hold on one second. In 1 John chapter 4, when he's talking about God's love, he says, a perfected love, perfected agape. When you really understand God's love, what does it do to fear? Does anyone remember this text? First, it cast out fear because fear has to do with punishment. That's what John says. So when a person has a primary posture of fear towards God, it's because they do not really yet totally trust and rest on the work of Christ as sufficient payment for their sins. So they still think that there's something that they need to be punished for. 
and I'm not faulting them in, at all, is he's uh, diagnosing their condition. You know, if you've got fear towards God, it means I probably don't really fully trust that Christ's work is sufficient. And that's a big hurdle for many people because it seems so unfair. Like, are you serious? I'm going to believe, just believe in Jesus and his death on the cross completely makes me right with God? That is a huge step for most people to really step into. But that's grace, you know, that's, that's the notion. Yes. Exactly. It's a sense of awe. That's the way we should take it. So he's really saying, um, look, God's at work inside of you and me and the whole church, both to change our wills and to work out God's great, awesome plans. And what we should do is have this sense of awful anticipation of all of the great things God's going to do, not, not be afraid of God. Yes, sir. John, is there a, I've, for years, have always, every time the word fear comes up, fear God, fear, uh, I immediately say that's all because that had, Good. had bugged me up a little Now, the question I've got, is there any place in the Bible, is there any time where to interpret it that way is wrong? What, to be absolutely afraid of God, to be fair? Yeah. Oh, yeah, Jesus said that you should not be afraid of those people who can kill your body. Um, he said that in Matthew uh, 12 and 13 when he's getting his disciples ready to go out on a mission trip. Don't be afraid of those who can just kill your body. Who you should really be afraid of is God who can not only take your life away but actually impose punishment on you. But this isn't like, that's something for us all to think about. You can't defy God. And, you know, the master would say, you know, there's lines here. You're not, you can't shake your fist into the face of God and get away with it. Um, God shouldn't be, be, you shouldn't be afraid of God, but on the other hand, if you're going to go through life as a total rebel, then you might have some consequences that you'll eventually pay. But having said that, 90% of the rest of the New Testament is on this other model, that why would you be afraid of a person who gave his very life for you? Um, for if God, who did not spare his own son, uh, but gave him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That's the th heart of the New Testament, right? Yes. Okay, anybody else? What, anybody else want to comment on this theology? Do you, you understand he's telling you, everything that he's going to tell you in Philippians 3 is predicated upon our understanding of this. You will not be able to do Philippians 3 or experience it unless this is the model that you're uh, allowing to happen. Yes. Yes, the New Age reading of that, yes, okay. Go on. Um, to, to empty oneself, it seems like it's in New Age and also in Christ Christianity. Okay. Both. Uh, and it is, and here's the fallacy with the whole thing. First of all, you, humans can't empty themselves. Um, you can't stop being human. Everything that we're learning in this course is the fact that God designed us to be human and to go through a prog progression of stages. And those stages in and of themselves are good. It's not bad to be an infant. It's not bad to be an adolescent. It is a required, necessary stage to blossom into what God wants, a telic 
human being. So a human being has no more power to, to empty themselves or to stop this progression or to move from being a, uh, a brilliant and at the same time crazy teenager in the spiritual realm to instantaneous maturity overnight just by, you can't do it. So when you teach people that, that it's up to them to break their hearts or break their will or empty themselves or to go through all these disciplines that somehow you're gonna break yourself down, it's really sending them off the wrong, wrong path. This right here is telling you God's already anticipated our deepest needs and, and problems. Our problem is we can't empty ourselves. So what God is saying to us is I will come and live inside of you, which is true for all Christians, and I will give you the power to do what Jesus did. In other words, relinquish your life. And this is a big misnomer among Christians. You, do you know God loves you the way you are and likes you the way you are and wants to use your personalities the way they are? This stuff about you being broken and a piece of trash and uh, can't be used and got to give up, get rid of yourselves, it's far from the truth. You, you can't do it in the first place, but all God wants us to do is give who we are to God, and then God will take who you are and manifest Jesus through you in a way that's totally unique. Does that make sense? It's, it's not getting rid of yourself. It's giving yourself. Okay. Yes, sir. This is where I need my Advil. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at the Beatitudes, mm -hmm. Yeah. I understand. If I was going to put the Beatitudes on this model, we'd get over here the Philippians um, 2 passage. So the first order of business God is asking of us is, I want you to understand that Jesus Christ, when he lived as a human being, um, what he, when he says he emptied himself, what it means is he stopped using his divine power. That's all that it means. He didn't stop being God because you can't stop being God, just like you can't and I can't stop being human. So he didn't, like, all he did was stop using his own divine powers and let God's divine powers work in and through him. Now, what is God asking of you and me? The only thing God is asking of us is what? A relationship in which you and I stop using our own human powers to live the Christian life and instead say, okay, God, you change my will and you work in inside of me with your power so that as a result, I start to become something. Not because I'm getting rid of something, I'm actually allowing someone, God, to fill me up. And it, you, know, you need the Advil because it's like a semantical thing. You know, what comes first? Do you have to evacuate everything so that God can come in? Or are we actually getting rid of stuff or is God driving stuff out? And I've, I view it as the latter because we're told over and over and over again in the New Testament, you can't save yourself. You can't live the Christian life in your own power. It's absolutely impossible. 
So until we get this straight, you know, then after we start letting God work, yes, those kinds of beatitudes uh, will start to manifest and you become something and then he says you'll actually begin to do things. And of course, in Jesus' mind, he said, you are going to do the very things that I did. Do you remember him saying this? You're going to do the very things I did. In fact, he says you'll do greater things. And what he means in that passage is the collective work of the, of the body of Christ working together. All of us letting Christ work in and through us will accomplish much more on this earth, believe it or not, than when he was here just in one body. So it's, it's a beautiful understanding of the Christian life. But if you drop out this, here's the standard way of Christians uh, looking at it. You say, okay, yes, I buy this, that Jesus gave up his use of his divine powers and he let God work in, in and through him. And the reason that he could do that is because he's Jesus. And you make a nice solid line here and put him in a separate box. Great. Lived a perfect life, did all these miracles, died and rose again and is now our savior. Well, what's that got to do with me? So this line becomes very thick. That's Jesus. Then we come over here, and then this starts this lifelong process of, okay, now that I have Zoe in me, now that I'm a Christian, what do I have to get rid of? What must I take out of myself? What must I break? What must I do? And we start piecemealing and going into our lives and saying, well, if I'm going to be, uh, if I'm going to have the beatitude of uh, what? Um, uh, mercy. Blessed are the merciful, then I'm going to have to get rid of all of the stuff that's inside of me that calls off for revenge and judgment and all those things. And that is an endless loop of futility. Because you, that's like somebody trying to cure themselves of cancer. It's like going into your body and trying to pull cancer cells out. You can't do it because the New Testament is telling us we are so entwined in this um, uh, spiritual uh, bondage to our self-will that we actually need supernatural intervention from the outside that liberates us so that our wills and our works really begin to be actually God working in and through us and not us trying to do it on our own strength. Is it, is it making sense? You're kind of looking at me like I'm a cult leader. I wonder what <laughs> This, I'm, I'm telling you from my heart, this is the absolute essence of the New Testament. Yes, sir. So we can't no, no, come get here. rid of our evil self without the Holy Spirit doing it. That's correct. You can just let him do it, but you're not going to do it on your own power. He's there to help us. And when you identify evil in yourself... Um, I mean, the two choices is, well, I got to get busy and pull that out. Or the other is, man, I'm sorry to find out that that's my true condition. Lord God, please help me. Re help me get rid of this. Fill me. Give me the power to get rid of this. It's Christ doing it. Yes. Okay, and, and that's, that's, that is the predicate of the entire New Testament theology. Now, it doesn't mean that 
as God changes your will, it does not mean that you are not a participant in that. And it also doesn't mean that, um, you know, I certainly hope that um, I'm here uh, allowing God to work in and through me, but I had to choose also to respond this morning instead of calling in and saying, you know, I don't feel all that well this morning. I think I'll take, I mean, I had to lay there and think about that and, and then choose. It's not like we become puppets or robots, but you understand, you're still a living human being, but you have this person inside of you that's constantly there for you. Yes. Beautiful. That's right. He'll guide you. Susan. So what you're describing is the true definition of meekness. Meekness is that we see it's not All right. She just said uh, a, a definition of meekness is one in which it's not correctly identified as passivity, but it's an attitude, right, towards God. It's, it's, you want to do this inside of me, God? You want to will your will inside of me? You want to work inside of me? Then with a, a joyful anticipation, I'm going to allow you and I'm going to participate. That's when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. He means let God work it in and through you. He doesn't mean you do it independently. Is that making sense? Okay, Yes. Yes. God wants our humanness enhanced. Thank you. So we can use every talent that we have. Thank you. It's becoming something far beyond we can even imagine. It's not getting rid of anything. God likes you the way you are. You know, if you're an intellect, God God likes that. If you don't care about intellectual matters and you're just whatever the opposite of that is, if you're just somebody that's engaged in well, well, Yes.
Okay, so that, yeah, that's a great paradigm shift uh, that you just described, beautiful. Yes, sir. Uh, this story comes back to me uh, time and time again. I heard it many, many years ago from a pastor from the pulpit that before he was engaged in his sermon. And, and uh, there's a man, and there was a man, and he, he went off the cliff, and he fell into the air, and he saw a branch and grabbed hold of it. And uh, he's hanging there, and he looks up, and he goes, uh, anybody up there? And uh, the big, big voice of God says, yes. And he says, uh, uh, well, what do you want me to do? And the guy looks down and goes, let go. And uh, the man on the branch looked up and goes, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> <laughs> I think that captures uh, pretty well our uh, existential angst on this whole thing. Yeah. Um, now, I can look at the clock, and I know this is actually a good thing because this is so important. Uh, we won't get through it all today. Um, so we'll continue it next week, but we're going to do the first part. So could you, now that we've got this as a foundation, we want to look at Philippians 3, 2 through 6. And there's a foundational move that has to happen inside of a person. And Paul's going to describe his past. You'll notice this is... A, in this, this is very biographical or autobiographical. He's describing how he got moved from uh, through these various stages. We're not going to get to present and future. So let's just do the past, and then I'll let you work on this a little bit this week, and when we come back next week, we'll finish it. Um, let's have a reader do um, read 3, 2 through 6. Actually, 3, 2 through 7. I will. I've got to read off my new Bible. Okay, very good. Hi, Tech Jerry. I'm, I'm making it into the new thing. Good for you. Where's the microphone? Watch out. Microphone. Microphone. Okay. Uh, 3, 3? Three, two, three, two. Through seven. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Jesus Christ and who put no confidence in the flesh. Keep going. Oh. Whoa. Though I have myself reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So he's saying he's faultless. Ah, yes, according to what standard? This is his past performance. This is what he achieved in what is called the flesh. This is his human effort. He was sincere. He was zealous. He cared about this. He was like a Nicodemus on steroids, if you want. He was like a fourth generation Presbyterian. A fourth generation Presbyterian, okay. Uh, you can say that. I will not. <laughs> um, what he's doing here is listing what? Okay, you want to have a competition about who can please God through human effort? Let's go for it. And so he starts listing out all of his credentials. 
Um, when he gets to the end, when he, the, the capper is, by the standard of the righteousness that's contained in the law, I hope your translation says, becoming faultless. Mm -mm, just a comma. Well, it should say becoming, because, you know, in Jewish theology, you know, sin is a mistake. It's a choice. You sin, you step off the line, off the mark. You can repent and go back to it. They, they look at it as actually being able to make moral progress in the keeping of the 613 commandments. So at a certain point in time, he got to that place where he said, look, you know, I wasn't always perfect, but I, if you want to evaluate my life by the 613 commandments of the Torah, go ahead, because I'm very confident and I'm fully compliant. Can you believe that? Yes. I haven't gone the rest of the way here, but how, how, you, could, you could look at that differently. He was a Pharisee with all that above that. And as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. I mean, he was a faultless Jew is what he's trying to say. Yes. If you, if, if you take the old system of the 613, and when he says persecuting the church, I mean, people, some people think Paul is crazy. If you go back and read Deuteronomy 14 and Deuteronomy 18, it basically has text in there that says if anybody comes into the nation of Israel and seduces people away and teaches them that to believe in and worship any other God than other than the God that you have had revealed to you in this covenant, you shall drive that person out. Paul was just obeying the Bible as he understood it at that time when he was persecuting Christians. He wasn't doing it for fun. So now, here's where it gets interesting. So this all represents what to Paul? What, what, when he lists all this out, what, what it was he, what's he trying to convey to us? That he's this awesome person? No. So there's something else he's trying to get to. Yeah. Yes. He changed from, this is how his old worldview was. This is his flesh to use Terry's uh, comment. This is his performance. Uh, one of my good friends frequently has said in my presence, I came to Christ out of success. <laughs> I wish I could say that. <laughs> what, a, what a state. And, he, and he, he's for real, too. I mean, on both ways. He means it, and he really was a success. Uh, so Paul is saying what? What? I had this self-identity, this persona, this understanding of myself as a human being made in the image of God, and it was all predicated upon what? What I did, my performance. So the first step towards telic maturity, to becoming a mature Christian, is to embrace this thing that he tells. What happened to him? Yes, Jerry, he changed. What happened? All right, so everything of his human performance he now considers to be, and they nicely translated it garbage. I've told you this before. He uses a word there that's stronger than garbage. And I actually had uh, my uh, friend Cindy Friley look this up. It's so disgusting, but I want to leave it with you just so you can get the vividness of it. Let's stop vanillaizing the text. 
He says, everything that I achieved in my life, I now consider to be scubala, translated as garbage. It really means um, excrement. Look in the King James. They translate it accurate. Do you have one with you today? It says dung, right? You're not, you're not in the King James. In Philippians 3 in the King James, he says, I consider it all to be dung. Do you have any idea how much dung a human being produces in a lifetime? Yeah, Cindy looked it up. It's about two and a half tons. <laughs> so the first step of telic maturity is to look at yourself, your life, as a big boxcar of scubala. If that's what you're counting on to be right with God, that's what he's saying you have to do because the longer you cling on to this stuff, you can never go into telic maturity. What replaces it? What is now the foundation of the mature Christian? Not your own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. He blatantly contrasts the kind of righteousness that comes by keeping laws versus the kind of righteousness that comes because Christ gives it to you as a gift. So you talk about meekness, Susan. If this happens inside of a person for real, they wake up in the morning and they realize, I'm right with God not because of one thing I ever did. If I'm right with God, I'm right with God because of what Christ did for me. And that is where you get true humility, right? Meekness. And you can't become a mature Christian unless you go through this phase. It's shocking. I mean, seriously, look at your whole life that way and say, all my hard work, all that effort that I put in, everything I attempted to do, and it's not good enough. That's why Christ came. That's why Christ came. Because not, nothing any of us did would ever have been good enough. Yes, sir? You've you got to be careful with that because everything we did in our life is not bad. It's spiritual bad. It's not bad, but it's also, it's just not good enough to get to the place where God wants us to be. Uh, incidentally, uh, you're using Greek there. Yes. <laughs> Is that right? So now we can swear in uh, Greek and Latin together. And <laughs> okay, well, th this is the foundation of the whole thing. Now, the next week when we get together, we're going to uh, go forward and put this whole um, chart together because that's, that's not good enough. It isn't just good enough to say what we have to give up and also just that we're getting Christ's righteousness. There's much more in this passage that defines a telic Christian. So um, I hope you look at this passage this week and uh, have a great day today. Let's pray together before you go. Um, Lord, talk about humility and meekness. We stand here uh, with awe and trembling that you have done this amazing thing for us through grace to take us from these creatures that are trying to impress you with our little works to giving us in exchange the work of Christ. We thank you that we're right with you by faith, not in of ourselves. And that gives us the freedom now to love everyone, uh, not because they deserve it, but because you love them, because you died for them.
confirm us in this grace and take us to the highest level that we can go, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, have a